Welcome to The Think Podcast, the show that tackles impossible questions from a biblical perspective with your host, Joel Sedeckes. And now, get ready to think. Welcome back to another episode of The Think Podcast with yours truly, Joel Sedeckes. This is the show where we tackle impossible questions from a biblical perspective to help you explain, share, and defend the Christian message. And today I've got a very special guest. If you saw the promotional artwork for this one, um, it looks like something out of Who Framed Roger Rabbit, where you've got like the physical guy and then the cartoon next to him. And um, the reason why is because I've got RC Apologist on today. And as you'll see in a minute, RC is going to be represented by a cartoon avatar. And so, no, that was not an April Fool's gag, as my wife thought uh, maybe it was when she saw the the artwork. Um, but I am dealing with, or I am uh, going to be speaking with RC Apologist, and he is very much a real person. And he is a Christian apologist who, if you ever look into his YouTube channel, um, or if you've ever subscribed to his apologetics newsletter, he deals with a number of topics. And he does so from a reformed perspective, a presuppositionalist perspective. Um, but I don't want to steal his thunder. I'll let, I'll let him share his story there. But this is a bonus episode of the Think Podcast. And we're really going to be addressing the topic of Islam. It's a loaded question. It's a loaded topic. But what do Christians think about Islam? There is no way, I want to say this at the outset, that a quick 30-minute episode of a single podcast could fully explain this. So what we're going to do is we're going to give a brief overview of how different Christians approach our fellow quote-unquote Abrahamic religion, although that's actually a misnomer, and we'll discuss why that is, and why a presuppositional approach to Islam is best and what that looks like in practice. So my guest today is RC Apologist. Quickly before I bring him on, let me just say that if you're watching on Facebook, please go to um, what is it? Uh, streamyard.com slash Facebook to enter in your permissions so that you can comment and I can see you, or you can just hop over to the YouTube uh, channel and watch us there and uh, let us know if you can see us and hear us. We've already got several people watching. And um, just to let you know, you can catch all of our podcasts on the Think Institute network by going to thethink.institute slash podcast. All right. So if you have comments, questions, um, leave them in the comments and quick shout out to Ethan Michael, who's watching your friendly neighborhood atheist. All right. Without any further ado, I am thrilled to welcome RC apologist RC. Welcome brother. Thank you for having me on, man. It's my pleasure. My pleasure. And, uh, I I'm looking forward to this conversation and then we're having another conversation immediately afterward on, mm -hmm. on your channel. So I'm looking forward to that as well. Oh yeah, definitely. Because when I saw your book and took a look at it, I'm like, this is some good stuff. I got to talk to the guy about this. And then we end up getting this going on here. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah. Well, uh, it's definitely my pleasure. And, um, mm -hmm. I guess, why don't we just go ahead and, and get into it? Um, could you just briefly tell us you're sort of shrouded in mystery. You've got this, <laughs> you've got this cartoon avatar. You, um, you cover a wide range of subjects and you don't give out your real name. RC mm -hmm. apologist, of course, is not your real name. So what does RC stand for? And how, mm -hmm. what's your backstory? How'd you get into apologetics? 
Well, RC, and believe it or not, a lot of people keep thinking that it was standing for like RC as in like RC Sproul. I'm like, I don't, I don't know how I could go up to that, but I understand. But, uh, but it stands for Reformed Christian. And indeed, that will be on some things. I will say I am the Reformed Christian apologist. But sometimes in certain uh, deals, there's going to be just, you know, RC because that's the only thing you can have and the characters allowed. So RC just sort of became the uh, simple, easy go to in the, um, little pronunciation during mm-hmm. debates and all that kind of stuff. So my whole deal in apologetics was that when I was uh, born again in 2013, I had begun looking into the faith and all that after, you know, being born again, you're definitely curious to explore that element. But then I started noticing a lot of criticisms and that people were being a little, you know, too harsh on it. I was wondering why. And so I decided to look into how to deal with these things. And I eventually come across apologetics and I started getting into it from, you know, looking originally to William Lane Craig and some of the big names right. you sort of hear when you get first into it. Right. Um, inspiring philosophy, who had been a inspiration in my um, approach and trying to look into the research and then eventually came across um, exegetical apologetics, though they were reformed apologetics ministries back in the day. And then Greg Bonson, Van Til, um uh, frame who is the more recent one that's been an influence uh, and even slightly Clark though I don't think I go to too much into the matter of uh, the Clarkian approach of the right. precept <clears throat> so how so you became a, a believer in 2013 mm-hmm. and uh, how many years did it take you then to to move over to uh, to, to like actually uh, would you say that you became reformed Hmm. That's a good question. Um, in terms of how long it would take to get to the point where I was reformed, I would say that it was about possibly two or three years afterwards. It's been okay. it's a bit hazy, but I know that I've been for the most part of my um, born again life in uh, the faith has been within the reformed um, perspective. Okay. Um, All right. And um and when you say reformed, do you mean, because uh, that term means different things to different people. Do you mean oh, yeah. just uh, Calvinist adhering to the, the five um, points of Calvinism or the doctrines of grace? Or, mm-hmm. or would you consider yourself confessionally reformed, subscribing mm-hmm. to the Westminster Catechism, uh, Confession of Faith or mm-hmm. um, Second London Baptist Confession of Faith? Or, or what do you mean by reform? So I do generally just go with the notion of the the Calvinistic kind of notion of it. Now, mind okay. you, while I do adhere to the Westminster uh, standards, the confession, the catechism, and all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. uh, regarding these like creeds that we have, I, of course, go with what the first chapter states regarding scripture, as in overall things is ult- the ultimate authority and thus be the Amen. ultimate parts of our beliefs. It just Amen. states what we believe in the confessions. Okay. Okay. All right. So that's, that's helpful. All right, everybody. So now you see where RC is coming from. And if those terms don't mean a whole lot to you, if you have no clue what the Westminster is or the, what the five points of Calvinism are, um, I would encourage you uh, continue watching this channel or, um, you know, there are other resources out there. But, you know, if you're curious, you can drop a comment right below this video. And maybe if, if we have time at the end, we could address them. But um, that's not what we're talking about today. Um, the reason why it's important to lay out our own perspective ahead of time is because when you're addressing another religion, another worldview, another perspective, it's important to acknowledge that none of us approach these questions neutrally. 
we're all coming from some standpoint, some worldview background or a view of the world and life. And so having kind of laid out where we stand or where RC stands, I myself am also Calvinist, uh, Baptist, and um, most definitely a presuppositionalist as well. If you've watched this channel, you know that. Let's get into our topic now, which is what do Christians think of Islam? Now, um, RC, I was... Mm -hmm pretty vague there in the title because you know it's not like we're going to be able to talk we're not going to cover what all christians think yeah. of, of all muslims of course but maybe we can just start here and that um with this question do muslims and christians worship the same god what do you think you usually see that question that comes up and usually you can sum it up in depending on how it's phrased. Like a lot of people say Abrahamic God. And in that sense, it would be the same in the sense. This is where I have to clarify because mm -hmm. a lot of Muslims will try to take those words sometimes and just go with it, depending on who you encounter that that's all they need at that point. But the clarification is in terms of like, we're like the people we believe, like, you know, Abraham, Jacob, Isaac, all these people that are in the Bible, uh, Jesus, that these figures would indeed encompass the idea of the kind of God we worship. But in terms of what is God, um, yeah, we don't worship the same God because in Christianity, right. you have the triune God, three in one, whereas Islam adheres to the doctrine of Tawhid, the absolute oneness of God. So a Unitarian notion of God, the monist view of God, mm -hmm. that's the kind of God in Islam. And that is definitely two different uh, gods at that point, because you can't have it be in a Unitarian God and a Trinitarian God. They can you have a God that's monotheistic, but Unitarian and Trinitarian are two different contradictory terms of monotheism. Yeah. And, and don't you think that that's an important clarification to make? Because mm -hmm. while we might share similar views of history, you know, Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob, and the existence of Abraham, the existence of Ishmael, uh, their historical significance, although we would mm -hmm. certainly differ on, on Ishmael. Um, not that he didn't exist, but you know, what his role was. Um, wouldn't you say that that's really a primary distinction we have to make when we're interacting with Muslims? Oh yeah. And that's why I usually be blunt about it. Cause you know, some people like get shocked whenever you say that they're not the same God. And then when you explain right. it and like, I mean, there's a Unitarian concept and then there's the Trinitarian concept and that's just one specific element uh, to it ultimately. And this is where we eventually get into like the transcendental argumentation against Allah in comparison to the biblical worldview versus the Quranic and the Hadith based worldview. Right. The Quranic meaning having to do with the Quran, of course. Mm -hmm. And then the, the Hadith, uh, could you briefly tell us what those are? So the Hadith are a collection of writings that are usually attributed to Muhammad in terms of the sayings. Now they come right. from different people. Like you have Imam Bukhari for the Sahih Bukhari is the most famous work that's out there of Hadith. Um, and every one of those is considered Sahih or authentic mm -hmm. um, in the Islamic term, which means that they believe there is no chance of it being fabricated or any of that kind of stuff. Hadith studies is a very complicated subject, but the main Hadiths right. that seem to be accepted by Muslims, the two authentic ones with no defects in them is Sahih Bukhari and Sahih Muslim. And then the last uh, four that have some debates in terms of certain uh, passages in there is Sunan al-Nasai, Sunan Abu Dawud, Jami al-Dermidi, and Sunan Ibn Majah. So these are the Hadith from the Sunni. And then there's, of course, Shia collections. But again, we're going to try not to get too much into that because I know we have a little bit of time. But ultimately, Hadith is just a collection of writings that 
are supposed to be sayings and activities of what Muhammad did, said, and lived. Okay. And of course, that's one of the things that separates Islam from Christianity, isn't it? Where mm-hmm. our entire worldview is um is is contained within scripture yeah uh in in the sense that while we might have confessions catechisms you know you, we mentioned the westminster earlier uh those aren't definitional for us those um the the westminster could be wrong and and christianity is not falsified at that point um because christianity is is rooted and grounded in scripture alone would you agree Oh yeah, absolutely. I believe that you know, as a person who adheres to sola scriptura, that scripture is the only ultimate authority that we adhere to regarding the doctrines that we practice and the way we behave and conduct ourselves and our ethics, and ultimately the beliefs that we hold to that govern how we view reality and such. That right. it's scripture that is the main focus on that. So, when it comes to our view of reality, you know, um, the the question of ultimate reality is addressed by the philosophical field of metaphysics and the most fundamental question really of metaphysics is what is god like is god there and what is he like um what's your view on the concept of allah which i understand that the word means god essentially it means the god Mm -hmm. but when when we say that allah is a different god from yahweh or from the triune god of scripture Mm -hmm. um jehovah What's what's your opinion on this? I'm curious, RC. Do you believe that the Muslim God Allah is actually a different God in the sense that there is a spiritual entity behind Allah, like a, a whether a, a, a spiritual, um, you know, a demon or, um, I, yeah, I guess a, a demon or, or a fallen, uh, you know, entity, mm-hmm. or do you believe it's merely a false concept? Meaning, um, when when a Muslim prays to Allah, do you think that they're praying to Actually, someone is someone hearing those prayers, or, um, or is it? Are they merely praying to the air, so to speak? Hmm. So I would go with the position <clears throat> that, with my view on it, um, there have been some people that would say that you know there's this notion of God that is just simply made up, uh, and then there's the demon thing. A lot of people these days are going with the demon possession in light of a certain story out there that says that, um, you know that. Uh, Muhammad was demon possessed, though there's been issues in scholars that doubt the authenticity of the specific account. But even if we do accept that notion that it was not uh, authentic, I would say that we don't even have to say that it was a demon or such, but that rather it is indeed, as I believe is argued from Frame and various others, that in terms of how Allah is depicted within the Quran and how Muhammad sort of captures this notion of Allah in the Hadith. What we see is a God that is most likely and able to be made up by men based on the premises of fallible human uh, reasoning regarding the manner, as well as trying to do what they always emphasize. Cause the main thing you'll always hear is the simplicity mm-hmm. of Allah that, you know, he is so simple. It's just one. That's all it is. And all that kind of stuff. Right. And, that would be the problem is that that point is something that can easily be fathomed within the mind of humans because Mm. easily they can come up with, for example, I could come up with a notion of that there is a God, but he's some kind of pop tart or something like that. It's easy to just come up with something that's just like a singular notion and say, there's only one specific, like even a different brand of unfathomable pop tart flavor or something like Mm. that. But with the God of the Bible, 
it is indeed where even the Westminster standards themselves talk about the issue of the incomprehensibility of God. And the scriptures even note that, that there is this incomprehensibility and it's seen in the triunity of God. And even Van Til mm. recognized that when referring to God as three, but yet God is one. And he right. went with those notions, but like Unitarianism falls into some logical problems in and of itself. Yeah. Um, okay. Let's put a pin in that because I definitely yeah. want to come back to that in our third question. Mm -hmm. um, but, but um, you know, for me, I waffle on that because um, the apostle Paul, well, the Lord uh, speaking through the apostle Paul says mm -hmm. that essentially behind every idol is a demon, so to speak. Um, mm -hmm. um, that's a very loose paraphrase. And and if Allah is a false God, mm -hmm. as biblically defined, he would have to be. Part of me thinks, well, there must be a demon behind him then. Um, but then again, you know, you get into this idea that Islam is, if you look at the the origins of Islam, it's, it's probably best categorized as a, a Christian cult, almost like, um, mm -hmm. Jehovah's witnesses or something, you know, where, uh, it's sort of loosely based in Christian theology, biblical theology, but, but twisted mm -hmm. and perverted. Um, so I, I like, I like what you said. I think I could probably get down with that. I, I think the idea that it's the God concept in Islam is simple enough that a man could grasp it or, or, or let's say it's simple enough, not only to be grasped, grasped, but invented by a man. That that mm -hmm. tells me, uh, yeah, that that points to it not being um, divine in origin, right? And I think when we do see even say like it's a demon kind of thing, I can't think. I even think that might be somewhat of a compliment to try to give it some kind of like supernatural kind of thing to, it. and that's why, mm -hmm. to me, a lot of the issues about Islam is mostly the fact that it is rooted in a man's desire. And this is based on my view of it personally. Mm -hmm. Is that it was. Muhammad, who was so adamant about the wanting people to flee from polytheism and adhere to monotheism, and I admire that kind of notion, but the mm -hmm. route that he went was uh, not the right route, especially when he had to come up with this new notion of a Unitarian God in the sense that he creates it. The Jews had one right. in terms of some of the schools of thought there, but with how yeah. Allah makes it, I even say there's a problem even within its own worldview, especially in light of Unitarianism. Yeah. 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 No, I, I think you're right there. Um, I will say, I do think scripture leaves open the possibility that um, a, an angelic force, a, a, a spiritual entity oh, yeah. would, would reveal a false religion. I mean, Paul says, if, if anyone, even an angel from heaven preaches to you another gospel, let him be eternally cursed. Mm -hmm. So that certainly doesn't endorse the false gospel, but it does leave right. open the possibility. Wouldn't you agree that oh, it, yeah. it could be, it could be revealed from a, a false deity or from a spiritual entity. And I think it definitely could be the uh, the case because if we do go with that story that I mentioned, where he was oh, believing yeah. himself to be demon possessed, right. um, that it could be just an influence into that. And once that influence has begun, mm -hmm. he's already going with it in his head. So I, either yeah. way, like I don't, I wouldn't, I won't. I think I should correct myself in some degree. I wouldn't say I deny ultimately that it has some form of potential spiritual enemies uh, trying to create this thing, but I do believe they helped at least. Uh, kind of give like a slight bit of a pebble in the shoe to sure. use the Greg Kokel analogy um, yeah. to kind of get him starting to think that way. Mm. Okay. Um, thanks for that. What do you, what do you make of the Muslims uh, Muslim apologists claims that Muhammad is predicted in 
the Bible. Uh, mm -hmm. I've heard this claim in the form of, you know, Moses said that a prophet would arise from the Hebrews brothers and, and they would have to listen to everything he said. I've heard that applied to Muhammad. I've also heard, of course, the claim, which is probably more popular, at least I've heard it more, um, that when Jesus predicted that the comforter would come, that that, the word for comforter, if in in um, the the original original language, not even the Greek, but supposedly the Aramaic behind the Greek, is Ahmad, which is Muhammad, and that Muhammad was when he came, he was the fulfillment of um, of that prophecy. Which, you know, maybe you could tell us what you think of that and and how you interpret those verses. Mm -hmm. So, a lot of this, um, the, the main origin of this, of course, can be found in the notion of. Uh, the Quran. The Quran does say, talking about the identifying Muhammad as quote the unlettered prophet, who they find mentioned within their scriptures. And when they say their scriptures, they're usually referring to the scriptures of the Jews and of the Christians. Mm -hmm. um, so when it comes to that, that's when usually the uh, the argument for polemics appears because we see this not really as active, honestly, in early Islam based on what we're we read in the literature. But if you do look into Ahmed Didat, that's when you mostly see a lot of these like kind of stretches for these go into and a lot of people today still use from that. And can um, you tell us who Ahmed Didat is? He was a uh, most, basically the Billy uh, Graham of Islam who came to America and preached like this mass uh, crusade uh, kind of thing of preaching Islam and getting tons. He's basically responsible for like a lot of Muslims converting to Islam today mm. is because of the work that he had laid out. Um, and now a lot of people like Zachary Nike and all these have also been influenced by that line of thinking. But he came and started writing all these books and these lectures regarding the manner um, and was definitely adamant about the issue of uh, Muhammad being mentioned in the Bible and a lot of the stuff comes from him. But when you examine them, they don't hold up. And if you look in the context, most of them are either written in reference to Jesus or they're in reference to something completely different, like within the issue of the Song of Solomon, where it mentions the uh, one of the titles of uh, Muhammad in there, or they try to say Muhammadin, uh, depending on who you spoke to uh, on the topic, but it's referring to not even Jesus, not even Muhammad. It's referring to the individual in the narrative of the story itself in Song of Solomon. It's not referring to um, Muhammad at all. It would be impossible and thus is the problem that comes up. They have to try to stretch and ignore certain context to put their prophet in there because they have to, given the presupposition in the Quran, the Quran states and makes the claim Muhammad is mentioned in the scriptures, so they have to try to do their best to use the lens they have and their presuppositions and read that when they are reading our text. I forgot about that, uh, that they will also make the claim that Song of Solomon um, predicts Muhammad as well. So, yeah, you're you're right. It, it ignores context. Um, you know, Song of Solomon isn't, isn't even a uh, prophetic book, other than mm -hmm. the fact that there are some who see parallels and there's this historic view that there's parallels between Christ and the church and, uh, you know, the relationship there. I don't fully get, mm -hmm. get down with that, but I mean, I can, I can see it. Mm -hmm. One of the more 
interesting ones that's come out. Um, and I've made a video, I responded to it, and I made a clarification on it as well based off people who still repeat it. A lot of them are going to Isaiah 42 nowadays and are saying mm-hmm. Isaiah 42 is the big one and all that kind of stuff. But the one problem that comes up, and I always cu- I'm kind of curious about it when they do, because I didn't realize it until they eventually showed they left a part of the verse out. But in Isaiah 42, uh, they quote where it says, it says that this prophet uh, shall go forth as a mighty man. He shall stir up jealousy like a man of war. But if that's verse 13, if you, they left out part of the verse and it originally it says, and this is the King James, the Lord shall go forth as a mighty man. He shall stir up jealousy like a man of war. So right. that he left that out. And a lot of people didn't think about that until people pointed out some were doubting and some try to say it's as if the Lord Allah is working through Mm. uh muhammad at that point so they have to try to work out these kinds of notions but the point is that they purposefully sometimes leave these out because sometimes they realize that the audience might not uh fall for some of the stuff so they have to edit Mm. some of the footage out not saying that he's trying to purposely be deceptive but at the same time i think again it's mostly a cherry picking for a specific polemical point they want to make all right good well um let's go ahead and turn to our third question then Mm -hmm. which is why is christianity a better worldview and religion than islam what's your response all right i'm gonna try to do this in less than five minutes or your uh order is free um that that being said so there's several things to point out with um i covered some of this stuff in my article that uh that i covered on the presuppositional critique of Sunni Islam, which I think is the majority and thus what we should adhere to on most Muslims. And that is that you have the notion of Unitarianism. The Unitarianism is a problematic view. And to quote um, a philosophical point by uh, uh, Timothy McCobb, a very good uh, guy from his article on presuppositions.org, the rational sovereign omniscient author of time and universe will um, ultimately know and conceive of everything that occurs. Um, and yet at the same time, this occurs with divine sovereignty being shared, Hmm. but under Unitarianism, it is not being sovereignly shared at all. This divine sovereignty. And as a result, uh, this leads to his conclusion that under Unitarianism, there is no author of time and the universe or the author of time and the universe is not omniscient or else he is not sovereign. So there's this issue of, and even frame can kind of go into this in terms of the absolute personality of God um, regarding God being an absolute personality that he's absolutely personal in his relation to the human creation, whenever there's right. salvation. And then ultimately the next topic of predestination, the Qadar doctrine, um, that is even working in an absolute personality. Whereas the Quran says that Allah decrees everything by his will. And the main theology of it is that it's uh, decreed in what is referred to as the eternal tablets. Mm-hmm. Um, and even some people themselves, like there was an article from Colin D. Smith that covers the issue of Qadar and one Muslim uh, scholar that wrote on the notion of uh, this doctrine, uh, believe uh, Umar S. Al-Ashkar in Divine Will and Predestination in Light of the Quran and Sunnah says, we should avoid discussing Qadar in depth because some aspects of it cannot be comprehended by the human mind. But so why they, is that a problem though? Why is predestination or sovereignty mm-hmm. a problem uh, mm-hmm. g- uh, granted Unitarianism? Mm-hmm. Ra- radical Unitarian, you know, right. and I would say the problem comes that 
in terms of the it doesn't have God being absolutely personal, as is noted with the Trinity. When we have the triune God, we have the order in which God does these things. The Father um, lays out the decree, mm-hmm. um, the foreordination. Uh, the Son acts upon it. And then, of course, we have the spirit within the term of the presence, the authority, the control, and the presence that is noted in Frame's theology. So we have God being personal and interacting with his creation, but in Islam, he's done all this already in the beginning before creation begins, and he didn't do so by interacting with people, but by writing it, supposedly, with a pen, Mm -hmm. uh, according to how the narrative goes of it, basically just having it written down in these tablets before the beginning of the world. And this, of course, has brought up debate in early uh, Muslims between the issue of, well, how can the tablets be eternal if only Allah is eternal? Ah, so, that, right. so that poses problems. But then the ultimately, right. it reduces it to fatalism because if you've already done this in the beginning uh, without interacting with creation, so it reduces the absolute personality of God, and you've already, without interacting with anybody, then what is the point? And this is why some people have noted that this is what reduces the doctrine of Qadar to fatalism, to being mm. ultimately without plan or purpose, especially considering they don't believe in original sin. They affirm in the notion that they know God exists, the fitra, um, and that they're made good, hence why they can try to do good deeds. But if they have good deeds already and they're born without this thing, then why then on what authority does God have to simply send them to hell in the beginning by predestinating them without ending up in vicious circularity or problematic, contradictory, fallacious reasoning overall? Okay, so so I have to admit, so this argument about God's sovereignty is one that I go, well, I'll say um, God's interaction with the cosmos mm-hmm. uh, and and how that'd be, that would be impossible given... Um, a monism or monadism, you know, a monadic concept yeah. of God where he's not triune. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one that I go in and out of being able to understand. Um, sometimes I get it and it seems very clear to me. Other times it's like, well, why couldn't a monad interact with um, his creation? But the, um, it's sort of like, I get it philosophically, but I I can't uh, internalize it. It doesn't sit in my stomach as you know i don't have cognitive rest uh regarding the doctrine um Mm -hmm. what i what i will say though is um an argument that i'm working on developing and maybe somebody's already done this rc is the the fact that in the universe we we do have um unity and diversity you know cornelius van till talks a lot about that and how unity and diversity presuppose a god who is one and many um and the reason why is because uh, in creation, neither unity nor diversity, neither you could say neither facts nor laws, facts being diverse, laws being you know uh, uni- uh, unity, sim- signifying unity. Neither one of those is is ultimate. It's not like you know if if God was a monad, then radical oneness would be ultimate and diversity would be created and contingent. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. So, so, but that doesn't reflect the world in which we live. Mm -hmm. Um, Categories and laws are, and, and uh, concepts are just as real as individual entities and, um, and percepts, uh, you know, the things that we perceive are our perceptions. Mm-hmm. And so, but no perception 
happens apart from conception. No, you know, pers- there is no percept without a concept. There is no experience without um, uh, conceptual laws interpreting that that experience. And so um, there, you can't have one without the other. And a, a concept without a perception mm-hmm. to, um, you know, to kind of flesh it out, to see it in action is, is just meaningless. It's just a pure abstraction with no, no way of really truly understanding it. Um, and so only the, uh, a God who is, un- who is both one and many could explain the fact that there is unity and diversity in this world and that neither one is ultimate compared to the other. They're both equally ultimate, just like God is one and God is three and neither one of neither his oneness nor his threeness is ultimate or, or is logically prior to, to the other. What do you think about that? Hmm. I mean, I would definitely agree to some of the, you definitely go on, <laughs> in my opinion, a lot more deeper than I usually try to go with it. But I mean, See, I, I feel like what you said is deeper than I normally go. I, <laughs> I gotta, I gotta really think about what you said. Maybe, maybe someone watching this is, uh, is, is, is very philosophically inclined and can, can help me make sense of that. But, um, no, I, I I appreciate what you said though. I, Mm -hmm. I think, I think it makes, I think it makes sense. I have to sit on it for a little, I have to chew on it for a little while longer. And that's fair. That's fair. we just take one quick question absolutely okay this is from gospel ambassador watching on youtube thanks for watching gospel ambassador also thank you to our other viewers um nico boy official is watching thank you for watching but gospel ambassador asks this mm-hmm. what are the top three arguments to be shared with muslims mm-hmm. uh what do you think maybe that's asking a lot to come up with something really quickly but what, how would you answer I will at least try to go uh, in a summary, if not at least just give the general kind of statements about these. Because there's a lot of main thing I'm just going to say right at the top of the back. Don't be like polemical and antagonizing. Because mm-hmm. I knew, see a lot of people that have tried to do this, like Christian Prince and others that end up just. I've seen that the people that are just calling them sand people and uh, oh, potatoes yeah. these days, and I that's not biblical at all in terms of an approach to be no. insulting. Yeah, but the horrible. arguments, the arguments that I think would be helpful in the discussions with Muslims. Um, is the issue that we mentioned regarding uh, the transcendentally approached argument of it is going over the issue of Qadar. Um, so that's one. What is that? Uh, uh, K- Qadar. Q-A-D-R is what you normally hear. The pronunciation is a Q-A-D-A-R uh, for it. Uh, so the issues there regarding the doctrine of predestination, uh, also known as Qadar, uh, the notion of what I would say is, uh, I'm dubbing it as it because it's, only place I found it so far is um, Timothy McCobb's uh, refutation and philosophical argument against uh, Unitarianism. Um, it could be found on his website at presuppositions.org, but ultimately, again, points out that because divine sovereignty is not shared um, in such a way that is meaningful and purposeful, then it reduces the problem of Unitarianism to basically be devoid of logic and not a pr- a consistent view and then of course there is the issue that you have to ask epistemologically regarding the justification of the claim found in surah 4 ayah 157 that is that saying you know we killed jesus they say uh, but they did not kill him nor crucify him it was made to appear so this proposes a lot of problems and questions at that point and if he's going to be able to do that regarding the manner 
for a specific reason? How then can you know that your faith or what you're experiencing isn't therefore being some kind of illusion of some sort, much in the same way that it was done for those who experienced? Because when you mentioned mm -hmm. the Gospels, when you mentioned Josephus and Tacitus, they say they were deceived by Allah based upon to save Jesus from crucifixion. But can you then be that certain that it's not happening to you for his specific purpose based upon what's going on? Because not only are you denying a very historically accurate and attested account of Jesus being crucified, you are also then coming into question about how you can know the things you know and how you can even know you're in the proper metaphysical reality. That how do you know you're in front of a computer or that you're right. at uh, the bus stop? These issues come into question about our sense experience at that point for even today, because according to them, just like what we would affirm, God doesn't change. And the mm. same thing can be made in that kind of presuppositional thought. So ask them that question then and see where it gets them. Wow. That is a really good point. And that never occurred to me. I think that that is, uh, that that is very very valuable. Uh, I appreciate that. All Thank right, you. RC, uh, we got to wrap this up. Oh yeah. Um, where can people follow your work and get more information from you? I would say the main thing to go to is the uh, the YouTube channel, and there is the email that is usually attached to some of these, which is askchristiananarchist at gmx.com. It was the old email, and we hadn't had a way to change it, but hey, we'll still go with it. It's a good way to keep in contact if you got any questions or would like to have access to some of the resources, as well as we have our Discord uh, deal to hopefully get theological discussion back up and running again, and at that point, get us to bringing a podcast like this one to help edify fellow believers in Christ with the gospel, with apologetics, and of course, good old fashioned teaching of the faith overall. Yes. Oh man. Love it. Love it. Love it. All right. I did get one question from gospel ambassador. How would you prove that the Bible is not corrupted? Um, mm. You know, this, this is something that uh, I'm currently working on as well. Um, having been challenged recently by a Muslim apologist. Um, yep. Essentially, here's where I typically go, is that mm -hmm. um, the Bible is a unit. Um, if if the Bible, if any part of the Bible were shown to be corrupted to the point where it contained falsehoods and, and contradictions, then um, the Bible, which which in Scripture we have an affirmation that all Scripture is God-breathed, so all Scripture would be nullified at that point. And if all Scripture were nullified, then we would actually have no basis for knowledge at all, because it's scripture that presents to us the preconditions for uh, rational thought. Um, so if if the Bible is corrupted, then mm -hmm. it's actually impossible to believe anything with any degree of certainty, including that the Bible is corrupted. So it's actually impossible to believe that the Bible has been corrupted. Mm -hmm. um, I do think we can show it evidentially through textual criticism, um, yep. but that's a long drawn out process, but that's kind of where I go. <laughs> what do you think? I would say, and I would try to point that out is that when usually they say corruption, they refer to a term in textual critical studies in which just means variance. That's right. synonymous. So that's right. why I would say it is corrupted, but it's not corrupted in the sense they try to do so polemically. Like right. it's, they has variance, but every ancient text, including the Quran with certain textual variants, and even the Kirat that's been recently discussed, those are textual variants. It's the issue of finding out then the original readings based on, as you pointed out, textual criticism. So mm -hmm. we have ability to get to that original reading based on a 99.5% accuracy based yeah. on what is usually stated, and that the variants that 
can't be resolved by those aren't variants that affect doctrinal issues at all. Right. Right. Absolutely. No, I think that's great. Concise. Mm -hmm. It's good. All right. Well, uh, special thanks to our special guest on this special bonus bonus episode of the think podcast rc apologist it has been a real blessing having you on man i'm looking forward to coming over to your channel and um and having another conversation uh for everyone watching or listening thank you for watching thank you so much for listening can i just encourage you subscribe to our youtube channel hit that bell so that you never miss a moment and if you're listening on our podcast please give us an honest five star rating and review on apple podcasts and what that does is that helps us get the word out helps boost us on the charts and the ratings and um if you have any questions or concerns about anything we've said here today you can email me at thethink.institute at gmail.com All right. Um, That about wraps it up for us today. So I hope you heard something helpful. I know I certainly did many things. And um, until next time, then, I hope it made you think. Bye.